In this episode of Unbelievably True Crimes, we discuss a series of gruesome murders committed by a man that has no trouble getting women to fall for him. But how many of these women will have to fall for good until he's caught? This is Unbelievably True Crimes, Episode 6. Attention, ladies and gentlemen of the court. It's time for another case of unbelievably true crimes. Keep in mind that the case details you're about to hear may be completely factual, but it could also be completely fabricated. As your presiding judge, may I remind you that it's your duty to decide for yourself what's real versus what's not up until the very end. Now, let's begin. Welcome back to Unbelievably True Crimes, episode six. We made it to six. We're at six. Um, yeah, let's get started. Let's do this. Let's not waste any time in this. Here we let's, go. Let's get, let's get her going. Unbelievably True Crimes. If you're tuning in for the first time, welcome. I recommend you listen to the five episodes prior to this. But we welcome you, regardless of where you begin. So what are we? What are What is Unbelievably True Crimes? Who are we? What are we doing? Oh, I, I'm Ty. Hi, I'm Adri. So let's get that out of the way. We're That's married. That's who we are. Yep, we're married as well. So Unbelievably True Crimes is a crime podcast in which we discuss crime cases of the past. Not a true crime? Not a true crime. Not always. Sometimes. Do tell. Sometimes there are cases that are not true at all. Sometimes the cases that we discuss are completely made up by me. Like you, Adri will not have any idea whether or not the crime we are discussing is true or false. She's hearing these crimes in real time. She's hearing it all for the very first time every single episode. And at the end of each episode, you and Adri will have to consider everything that you learned throughout the episode to decide whether or not the crime was true or false. Unbelievably True Crimes aims to bring you interesting and jaw-dropping stories every Monday. So it's my promise to you that regardless of whether or not the crime that we're discussing each episode is true or not, I will have you wanting more and more crime. And I will give it to you. You'll like it. So hang tight until the end of this episode to discover whether or not the crime we're discussing this episode is true or false. Everybody gets to join me. Join me in sharing whether we think it's true or false. Join me being wrong, probably again. But hey, that's okay. That's the fun of it, right? Yeah, we're, uh, you're two, one and four? I don't even know. It's just, I'm just One and five. I'm going to stop keeping track. It's just, I, can't, I enjoy I, this either do way. you have two or one, correct? Technically, I think it was one and a half. Yeah, I don't know. Well, I don't know. You're not doing great, but we'll <laughs> try and improve that this episode. It's we'll okay. See. It's still fun for me. Yeah. Don't look it up as we go along. Don't look up the names. Don't look up the crimes because that's just going to spoil it all. You'll have a much more enjoyable experience if you just sit back wherever you are. Take every piece of information as I present it to you and then learn at the end. If you were right or wrong, true or false. Now, without further ado, episode six, let us begin. This week, we're going to Golden, Colorado. Ooh, back home. Golden, Colorado is the county seat of Jefferson County, Colorado. It lies along the base of the front range of the Rocky Mountains. Golden was founded during the gold rush on June 16, 1859. The population of Golden, Colorado was about 19,000 people in 2010, according to the census that was conducted. And that information comes from wikipedia.com. Wikipedia. Now, before we really dive into these crimes, it is important for us to establish the upbringing of our person of focus for today, which is William Lee Neal, or Wild Bill Cody, as he referred to himself as. Now, William Lee Neal was named after a family minister named William Lee. How do you get Cody out of William Lee Neal? So I found that it's better to just not ask questions of <laughs> William Lee Neal. 
because he's a pretty intense person, as you'll come to oh find God. out. Okay. So do you, don't question him. I'll tell you that I'm now. Sorry. Don't question him. <laughs> he had his reasons, and I'm sure, and maybe you'll even find out those reasons in today's case study. He's like, it sounds cool, okay? <laughs> <laughs> so William Lee Neal was born on October 7th, 1955 in Fort Belvoir, Virginia. I might have made Fort Belvoir. It might not be Belvoir. I think it I might like be it. Belvoir. I like it. Belvoir. Belvoir, Virginia. Yeah. So B-E-L-V-O-I-R-E, Virginia. He is the youngest of five children, three girls and two boys. William Neal states that he grew up in an all-American family. His father was a chief warrant officer in the Air Force. According to westward.com, William Lee Neal remembers his father as a good man who was also the household disciplinarian. William remembers growing up that his father taught the children at an early age to say yes sir and no sir, and also taught them to respect their mother. William Neal's father retired from the Air Force when William was around nine years old. Now growing up, William had a passion for country music, and his passion apparently came from his father. Among his favorite artists was Johnny Cash and Hank Williams Sr. All right. Those are good. Yeah. William Neal's father was apparently an honest man, and among the many lessons that he taught William and his four siblings was, don't lie and don't steal. A specific quote that William recalls his father saying was, quote, do what's right and tell the truth. If you do something wrong, you better come to me before anyone else does, end quote. During an interview of William Lee Neal, he states that his memory doesn't serve him very well when he tries to recall certain aspects and certain events from his childhood. But when it comes to memories of his mother, he remembers them all quite clearly. What was his mother like? On westword.com, it states that William loved his mother very dearly. He goes on to state that his mother was the definition of love and that she was awesome. He described her as a beautiful and gorgeous brunette, and to him, she looked like a movie star. Oh, I hope our boys describe me as a movie star when they get older. Oh, they will. I'm, I'm sure of it. You, you're a movie star. Thank you. You're a podcast star. Oh, thank you. William goes on to state that his mother and father never fought. He states that his mother never raised her voice, and just one word from her soft-spoken voice was enough to tell her husband that he had crossed the line, and after that, his father would do anything to make it right by her. Hey, that is a good husband right there. It is a good husband right there. When William Neal was 10 years old, he and a friend were reportedly caught shoplifting toy cars from a local five and dime. William states that he remembers the shop owner pulling he and his friend into the back office with the security guard and threatened to call both of the boys' fathers. William pleaded with the shop owner begging that he do anything but that. And eventually William and his friend walked away without any discipline after talking their way out of trouble. At some point during William's upbringing, his father took him to the FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C. During their time in Washington, D.C., William's father walked with him through the FBI headquarters museum. William remembers reading stories about Elliot Ness and J. Edgar Hoover, and it was at that moment when he wanted to be an FBI agent when he grew up. William reportedly stated that he thought it would be cool to catch bad guys and help people, but eventually that dream faded. At one point after his dream of becoming an FBI agent faded, William also considered becoming a minister. He was named after a family pastor, right? That's right. His uncle was also a pastor. William states that he got along well with his uncle, and his uncle is the reason that he considered becoming a minister in the first place. William also reportedly enjoyed going to Sunday school and church, and he loved Jesus. William stated that it seemed as though people were nicer on Sundays, and he liked that. William reportedly did not like mean people. I mean, who does? He goes on to state that there had been a storm that day when he was born, and he remembers one of his sisters explaining to him that he was the light during that storm, and that light within him continued for some time. And that's why he was able to get along with everyone. But when William was 12 years old, that light went out. Uh-oh. Buckle up. Things are going to get serious, right? You would be correct. Things are about to get serious. Okay. So what caused this light to go out when he was 12? Well, it's reported that around this age, William's father began drinking pretty heavily. 
William remembers that on the days when his father was really drunk, he'd be quicker to lose his temper and he would beat them with the belt. William recalls that he didn't really mind these beatings much in comparison to the times when his father would go out of his way to publicly shame him at the bars that his father would drag him to. Now, William's father apparently found this quite funny, but after blacking out, his father would forget all about it. But William never did forget. That's terrible. Yeah. Around the age 15 or 16, William was apparently seduced by an older married woman whose husband was apparently running around on her. William stated that she wanted to get even with her husband, so she decided that sleeping with a teenager was the best way to do that. Interestingly enough, (laughs) William stated that he enjoyed the relations with this older woman, but at the same time, he also felt guilty. William is quoted as saying, quote, I couldn't wash myself enough, end quote. The older woman apparently had told the young William Lee Neal that if he had ever told anyone about these relations between the two of them, his family would disown him. She sounds like a real winner, this lady. I know, right? So how long did this affair go on? This relationship for lack of a better term, went on for about six months and then the woman called it off. It was then never spoken about between the two of them until William had gotten out of the army. And when did he join the army? He joined the army when he was about 17 years old. Shortly before joining the army, William molested a younger girl. Around this time, he was also apparently molested by a church elder and molested by a sergeant in the military. Oh my goodness. I know. That's a lot. Yeah, yeah, it is. So eventually William is discharged from the army and he's revisited by the older woman who's now divorced from the husband that was running around on her. And she's pretty eager to pick back up on the relationship with William again. William reportedly told her at one point, quote, you had me as a boy, now have me as a man, (laughs) end quote. That's so weird. (laughs) Very weird. As their relationship progressed, William remembers this woman talking about moving in with William and eventually even brings up the idea of marriage. But at this point, William draws the line at that and walks away from this woman forever. William would later look back on this time in his life as the time the light inside of him went out. During this time, William did not blame anyone other than himself. But that changed in September of 1998, but we'll get to that soon. At some point after returning home from the army, William married his first wife, but that ended pretty quickly, and during the research for this case, she's not involved in a whole lot of interviews with investigators, and her name doesn't come up in any evidence that I found. Now, William tells people that the first marriage ended after he found his wife in bed with another man, but even William's own family states that that is not true. Karen was William Neal's second wife. Karen was born in upstate New York in 1959. She grew up in an upper middle class family and had a good childhood. She explains that she went through the normal teenage rebellion phase, but other than that, she stayed out of trouble. She went to college for two years where she studied English and horticulture. Ooh, what is horticulture? Hold. What is horticulture? Horticulture. (laughs) Can't even say it right. What is horticulture? Horticulture (laughs) is the art or practice of garden cultivation and management. Pretty cool, huh? Right on. It's a fancy forest. (laughs) Eventually, Karen became quite the outdoors enthusiast. She was an experienced rock climber and cave explorer. She also taught kayaking, which eventually led her to trying out for the U.S. Olympic canoe team twice coming in second both times. Karen was described as a beautiful strawberry blonde who was financially self-sufficient and was not afraid of an adventure. But after getting to know William Neal, she realized, well, he was a lot more adventure than she could handle. Where did these two meet? In 1981, Karen was working at a place called Hudson Bay Outfitter store as the assistant manager and that's when William Neal walked into her store. And how old is she at this point? This point 
she is 23. So William walks into Hudson Bay Outfitters and begins asking Karen for information and equipment for a hike that he's going to take on the Appalachian Trail. And he's apparently leaving that day for this hike. William and Karen apparently hit it off immediately. Karen later explained in an interview that she could have talked to him all day long. She described him as being as sweet as can be and stated he had long blonde hair and beautiful blue eyes. <laughs> so, throughout the story, sometimes he will, diff, different girls called him different things. So, Bill, obviously being short for William, is going to come up. <laughs> and sometimes, as you'll see later, they call him Cody for the, remember the nickname Wild Bill yeah. Cody? So, Bill was reportedly looking for a piece of equipment that Hudson Bay Outfitters did not carry. So it was at this point when Karen referred him to a competitor store a couple miles away. Bill eventually left the store and then Karen decided that she'd like to get to know him a little better. So she wanted to give him a ride on her lunch break, but when she went outside, he was gone. So during Karen's lunch break, she drives to the competitor store anyway and still doesn't see him until after a couple minutes. And then a bus pulls up and he steps out with his backpack. She then told him to enjoy his hike and to come see her after his trip if he got the time. So obviously they met again because she becomes the second wife to William, right? Correct. So Karen comes back to work the next day and the first person she sees is William wearing a three-piece suit and he also has a fresh haircut. She states that he looks incredible. William then told Karen that he had skipped his trip so that he could take her to lunch. Now, normally, Karen only got 30 minutes for lunch, but William was able to talk to her boss, and the boss ended up giving them an hour for lunch. So even right off the bat, William's making himself look like he's he's hot stuff. Yeah, good. William ended up taking her out to the woods for a picnic, and he also surprised her with a necklace he had bought her. Karen looks back on this day as the day that she fell in love with him. She states that he was incredibly charismatic and she believed he could have gotten any girl back then with a simple smile. Later on, Karen eventually introduced William to her parents and they really enjoyed his presence as well. Karen spoke very, very highly of William. She explained that he was very handsome and knew how to romance her. She stated that he seemed to know people everywhere and that all these people liked him as well. She stated that he could fit in with any crowd. It was such an imaginative person, and she loved that about him. But eventually, she realized that there had been signs that William was not the perfect man she thought that he was. Bum, dum, bum. Bum, 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 yes. <laughs> when Karen first met William, she explained that he had lived with a woman in the same apartment but he told her that it was strictly a platonic friendship and nothing more. Karen stated that the first time she went to go see William's place, he thought he'd seen the other woman at one point and told her to duck. She thought that this was strange and made her start to wonder if there was more than what William was telling her about the two of them. Her suspicions grew upon walking through the apartment after seeing that there was only one king-size bed in the whole apartment. She stated that, she was in love with him and wanted to believe that he was not in a relationship with this other woman, so she did end up just believing him. Another sign that Karen remembers was that she'd walk down the sidewalk with William and a female in a short skirt would walk past them and he'd call her a slut. Karen stated that these comments were always made under his breath, so it was only her that could hear them, but it still embarrassed her. She had asked him to stop making these comments and he agreed. But he never did quit. That's interesting. It is. Hmm. In 1984, William asked Karen to move to Houston, Texas with him. He explained to her that his mother lived there, and he had also lined up a very good job. She eventually agreed, and upon arriving in Houston, William secured them an apartment, but had Karen sign the lease in her name because he, quote, didn't want the woman at the rental office to know that they were having relations, end quote. You said he had a good job lined up. What was that job? Well, there was no job. And Karen found that out pretty quickly. And despite him not having a job, 
he made her get a job ASAP as the assistant manager at an import shop. Ten days after moving to Houston, William took Karen to the courthouse, where they then got married. On their wedding night, William introduced a game to Karen called Darkest Secrets. So they just tell each other their darkest secrets? Oh, you you know the game? It's a drinking game? (laughs) (laughs) No. Yeah, it's just as the title sounds. William apparently went first and told Karen that he'd had sexual relations with men. He then asked her a question next. He asked her if she'd ever slept with a married man, to which she replied yes. He apparently didn't like this answer, so it was at this point when he began choking her as he pinned her neck to the floor and straddled her abdomen. This was obviously pretty surprising to Karen because in her mind, William was perfect. So while William is choking her, Karen remembers William calling her a whore and names of the same variety. Good God, how long was he choking her? She's got to be pretty close to passing out. Well, she never passes out. She remembers him getting up off her body, and and then she remembers him commanding her to call the wife of the married man that she had slept with. Shortly after this, William returned to normal, and they went to bed. Oh, that was fun. Okay, let's go to bed. (laughs) never playing that game again. (laughs) A couple days later, William explained to Karen that they were going on their honeymoon to a place called Canyon Lake, where they were going to stay in a cabin for 10 days. Their first night there, William wanted to play the question game again. Do not play the question game! Well, Karen agrees to play the question game again. Oh my god! (laughs) And at some point in the game, he asked her another question about her sexual history, and after answering him, She found herself, well, she found herself pinned up against the wall with his hands around her throat again. Oh my gosh. At this point, Karen ran from the bedroom into the living room where she curled up into the fetal position behind a couch. William then entered the living room and screamed, Where is she? In a voice that Karen described as terrifying. William didn't see her, quickly gave up and went outside and smoked a cigarette. Karen stated that when William came back inside, he again acted as though nothing had happened. Where is she? That was... Yeah, where is she? That's awkward. Yeah. Whatever. What a psycho. Yep. After the first year of their marriage passed, Karen quickly learned that William was a natural con artist. When they were short on cash and needed food, he'd go to a McDonald's and tell them that they had left out a cheeseburger on his order, an order he never made, and they'd give him one for free. Other habits grew more worrisome. William's comments to women in passing became louder and more obvious, and Karen was always afraid of what might happen if one of these women heard him and stood up to him, but it never happened. After about a year of living in Houston, William decided he didn't want to live there anymore, and Karen was okay with this. Neither of them liked the atmosphere or the people, so they decided to use the money that Karen had earned from her job to travel up and down the East Coast to find their next home. So by the sound of that comment, it sounds like Karen was the primary moneymaker of their marriage. Yes, I couldn't find anything about whether or not William had a job while they were living in Houston. So where did they move next? After staying several weeks in Tennessee, Virginia, New York, and Vermont, They decided on Antioch, Tennessee, which is just 15 minutes outside of Nashville. After only a couple of weeks in Tennessee, William left Karen and went to live with his mother in Texas. After a couple of months, he returned back to Tennessee and told Karen that he wanted to make it work. During the time William was away, Karen learned from the neighbors across the hallway that William had told them that Karen could not be trusted. And because of this, He convinced them to keep a log of Karen's comings and goings. So wait, William left, and during that time away, he had the neighbors across the hallway keep tabs on her, and they did it? Yep. Isn't that strange that they agreed to do that? Yeah, they've got some problems of their own. Yes, I would agree with that. A couple of months after Bill returned home from Texas, Karen came home to find their apartment empty. William had reportedly sold all of her outdoor gear lots of her clothes, and various other items that meant a lot to her. Why? That's exactly what Karen asked him. 
and his reply was that it was part of this grand plan for them to start fresh somewhere else. Again? So now where are they going? Well, initially they lived in their van for a few months where they saved money. The van stayed parked in their friend's driveway for the rest of the fall. And then, unexpectedly, on December 1st of 1985, William told Karen that their marriage really wasn't working out and that she needed to remove herself from the van by January 1st. Their divorce was final a couple days after Christmas of 1985. She's better off. Oh, definitely. So the last time that Karen ever heard from Bill was sometime in 1997. He had called Karen and asked her for money to divorce his fourth wife, Jennifer. She refused to give him the money. So 12 years later, and he's wanting to divorce a fourth wife? Yeah, four wives. Wow. So this fourth wife, Jennifer, had met William at the strip club where she worked at in Denver. Apparently, all the girls in the strip club would always keep an eye out for their favorite customer who would come in wearing a black cowboy hat, and he called himself Wild Bill Cody. (laughs) They called him Cody for short. Now, whenever Cody would walk into the strip club, they'd play his song, which was Strokin' by Clarence Carter. He would reward these young women whenever they played this song, and he would apparently spend lots of money on the females who showed him attention, and that's why they were always on the lookout for him to walk into the club, because he was a big spender, I guess. So I guess Jennifer never thought she would have a chance with Cody. She didn't think that she was pretty enough as the other girls who she thought looked like supermodels, in her opinion. But on Jennifer's 19th birthday on September 29th, 1992, Cody walked over to the stage where she was dancing and reportedly laid out $1,000 in $1 bills and proceeded to ask her out. Wow, so romantic. So romantic. Be still my heart. (laughs) Now apparently, Jennifer had made a rule for herself that she would never date customers. Jennifer stated that lots of dancers really liked Cody because he was different from the average guy who came to the club. She states that he'd get the girls to sit down at a table with him and then he would just ask them to talk about themselves. And the girls, I guess, really liked that. She states that Cody was so charming and relaxed that he'd make you want to be with him. A couple days after her 19th birthday, Jennifer violated her own personal rule to never date customers and agreed to go out on a date with Cody. They went to a Chinese restaurant for their first date. Two days after that date, she moved in with him. Cody was apparently very romantic and would execute random acts of kindness for her like fixing her bubble baths, buying her nice clothes. She explained that his place was her place except for one room, which he kept locked at all times. The Dark Secrets Room? (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure he had some creepy name like that for it. In general, Jennifer stated that Cody was pretty secretive about his past life. He told her that he'd been married three times before, and he actually put his third wife in the loony bin, that's his words, after she tried to kill him. She tried to kill him? Not the other way around? Well, according to him, she tried to kill him. I don't buy that for a second. In addition to not telling her much, he also rarely mentioned his family. He told her that he was close with his mother, but that was about it. He also only mentioned his father once or twice. After some time together, despite her use of contraceptives, Jennifer became pregnant. And that's when this perfect guy started to change. And she saw a side of Wild Bill Cody that she'd never seen before. So what did he do to her? Well, there was one point when one of Jennifer's gay friends asked her out, and at first Cody was a little hesitant to allow her to hang out with him, but reluctantly agreed to it. However, when she returned home, she found that Cody had loaded all of her belongings into trash bags and told her that she needed to leave. Hmm. That sounds familiar. Right? So it was at this point when the 19-year-old, two-month pregnant Jennifer pleaded with Cody to give her another chance because, well, she had nowhere to go. Cody then reportedly told her to get into his car, where they then drove to his office, where he worked at 
a place called Dynamic Control Systems. Ironic place to work, considering how controlling this guy is. Yeah, Dynamic Control. So they arrived at Dynamic Control, and Cody then sits Jennifer down on a chair in the middle of his office, and then he tells her that while he was going through her things, he located a list of guys that she'd slept with from high school. He then told her that she was no good. He told Jennifer that finding this hurt him deeply. He then proceeded to call her a slut and a whore. Cody then took Jennifer back, and over the course of the next few days, Cody had thrown away all of her yearbooks and journals from high school, and it was from this point forward when she began referring to his office as the punishing zone and he would reportedly take her there often. Cody eventually married Jennifer when she was five months pregnant. He then demanded that she stop dancing at the strip club. I'm surprised he didn't demand that a long time ago. Yeah, me too. Now, during their short marriage, Jennifer stated that Cody had established some rules for her. A few of these rules were... Go ahead and read these. All right. She was not allowed to go anywhere without him unless she was chaperoned by one of his sisters who lived in Denver. She was supposed to leave him alone at work. She was not allowed to question where he went during all hours of the night. If she were to break any of his rules, she would go back to the punishing zone or back to her mother's house. On July 24th, 1993, Jennifer's daughter was born, but Cody was not present for the birth. She had called him when she went into labor, but his response was, quote, God damn it, I'm working, end quote. Jennifer soon realized that the child gave Cody more control over her. He would tell Jennifer that he'd take the baby away from her if she didn't do as she was told. The romance consequently eventually became non-existent other than the times he demanded it from her. He called these times, quote, Potty for daddy. Potty for daddy. <laughs> what in the world? <laughs> yeah, not not exactly sure. Um, yeah, potty for daddy. So one time during their marriage, Cody had taken Jennifer to a hotel off of East Colfax Avenue in Denver. At one point, he had said that he had a surprise for her, and then he blindfolded her and bound her hands behind her head. Now, once the blindfold was taken off, she observed a man, who was not her husband, inside of her. She then demanded that Cody get the stranger off of her. Cody obliged and told the stranger to leave. Once back at home, Cody kicked Jennifer out of the house. Eventually, like so many times before, Jennifer was allowed back. At another point, Jennifer was allowed to go visit a friend in the city and Cody told Jennifer that he'd take care of the baby. Jennifer explained that their daughter had always loved taking bubble baths, but after she left the baby with Cody that night, their daughter never enjoyed bath time ever again and would go into fits of rage whenever she was placed into the bathtub. God, so he obviously did, oh, God knows what to that baby when it was bath time something obviously traumatic yeah because a baby doesn't just randomly go from loving bubble baths to hating them oh okay move on what happened oh god jennifer realized this and although she felt as though cody would never molest or hurt his own child she decided to talk to cody's sister about what was on her mind now cody's sister then told jennifer to be careful going forward Jennifer then learned that in the mid-1980s, Cody had been investigated for the abduction of a little girl from a New York gas station who'd been raped and murdered by her unknown abductor. No charges ever came from it. Wow. Why was he investigated? Apparently, he'd been in the vicinity of the crime at the time, but the FBI later dropped him from the suspect list. Oh my gosh, I just remembered what you said about him molesting that underage girl in the beginning. Mm Mm-hmm. It's all coming together. In November of 1994, Jennifer had grown sick of her husband. At one point, he'd left her with their daughter alone in the house for three days with no food or diapers. And of course, one of the rules were to not leave the house without him unless one of his sisters were there to chaperone. 
After these three days passed, at one point he called her at three in the morning and she could hear him talking to another woman. Out of frustration, Jennifer told him, quote, don't forget to wear a condom, end quote. Oh gosh, I can't imagine that went over well. It did not, and it was at this point when Cody told her that he would be home soon and hung up the phone in an angry rage. Scared of what may happen, she called the police. The police then arrived shortly before Cody did and stood by while Jennifer packed her bags. She then asked Cody for the car to go to her mother's house, but Cody would not allow her a car, so she took a taxi cab instead. In May of 1995, Cody told Jennifer she could come back to the apartment. Please tell me she didn't go back. Well, she did go back, and it was shortly after her return back when Cody showed her the inside of the locked room. So inside the locked room was several army bags, but she couldn't tell what was inside of them. The only thing he did allow her to look at was several hundred photographs and letters from other women. Also on the first day back, Cody told Jennifer that he had avoided going to prison after embezzling approximately $70,000 from his work, Dynamic Control Systems. The company forced Cody to sell them his share of the company to avoid them contacting the police about the crime. One day, another woman came to the apartment looking for Cody. Jennifer decided that that was the last straw, and at this moment, she left the apartment with just her daughter, a diaper bag, and the clothes on her back. It's around this time when Cody's mother died of cancer. I sure hope Jennifer stays gone and doesn't feel the need to go back and comfort him. She does stay gone. Thank God. Jennifer saw Cody one more time after he filed for divorce in March of 1996. It was their daughter's third birthday party. They never saw one another again after that. Shortly after the divorce, William Lee Neal, or Wild Bill Cody, or just Cody, meets another woman named Rebecca Holburton at a party. Eventually, William moves in with Rebecca and they live together for two years. Over the course of those two years, William steals approximately $60,000 from her. I cannot stand this guy. Nor can I. So Rebecca finds out he's been stealing money from her and she starts making arrangements to kick him to the curb. Now during this time, he meets another woman named Candace Walters, who he then initiates a relationship with. My goodness. So William begins stealing money from Candace Walters. Walters then threatens to tell his girlfriend, Rebecca Holburton, that he's been having an affair with her unless he pays her back the money. So it's at this point when William comes up with a little plan. I can't wait to hear this one. On June 30th, 1998, William drives to Builder Square to go shopping. He buys lava soap, four eye bolts, nylon rope, duct tape, and a seven and a half pound splitting mall. Explain to me what a splitting mall looks like, please. A splitting mall is essentially half axe, half sledgehammer. Good God. So after making these purchases, William then drives back to the home he shares with his girlfriend, Rebecca Holburton. The townhome is located in Lakewood, Colorado, on West Chenango Drive. The townhome is currently under active renovation at this time, so the townhome has no carpet inside, and the windows are also covered with paper. When William arrives at home that morning after shopping, he invites Rebecca Holburton to take a seat in a chair that he's placed in the middle of the living room. Holburton, who was still in her bathrobe, was extremely excited after William told her that he had a surprise for her. She thinks the surprise is the money that he stole from her. Now it's at this point when William opens a bottle of champagne and then places a briefcase on Rebecca Holburton's lap and tells her to put her hands on it. At this point, Rebecca probably thinks the briefcase contains the money he stole from her. William then grabs a blanket and places it over Rebecca's body. Oh no. William then grabs the splitting mall and ambushed Rebecca from behind, unleashing a violent and ferocious attack with the hammer side of the mall. He hit her so hard that it completely caved in the back of her skull and sent a two-inch fragment of her skull flying across the room. What is this, The Walking Dead? 
Rebecca then slides to the ground, deceased. William then wraps her caved-in head in clear plastic to catch the blood. Then, after binding her limbs with nylon rope, he wraps her entire body in black plastic and pushes her body against the wall. One day after murdering Rebecca Holburton, William told 48-year-old Candace Walters that he was about to receive $52 million. He then told her that in the old days, when he was a hitman for the mob, he'd warned one of his targets that he'd been paid to kill him, and this target was so grateful that William hadn't killed him that he supposedly left his entire estate to William. William then told her that the target he'd warned so many years ago had recently died, so he would now be receiving all that money, which he planned to use to pay off his stripper ex-wife and get custody of his daughter. Less than a week later, William invites Candace Walters to his townhome that he shared with Rebecca Holburton. In the middle of the living room was a chair, which William then told Candace to sit and wait for her surprise on. You've got to be kidding me. Candace happily sits in the chair just a couple of feet away from Rebecca Holburton's body wrapped in black plastic and pushed against a wall. Now at this point, William told Candace he was going to place a blanket over her body, but she told him she didn't want that because it would mess up her hair. William then disappeared behind Candace and returned with the splitting mall, which he then used the axe side of the mall to cave into Candace's skull from behind. He then proceeds to strike the back of her head three more times. And as if that wasn't enough, William then urinates on Candace's head and shoulders and then wraps her head in white plastic, moves her body a couple of feet off to the side next to Rebecca Holburton's body, and then covers her body with a blanket. What an animal. Oh my gosh. The next day, William is hanging out with a girl called Suzanne. Now, Suzanne also has a roommate called Beth, who William has a relationship with. So this dude's got women everywhere. Yeah, no kidding. Like, everywhere. He then tells Suzanne that he has a surprise for Beth that he wants to show her. So he then tells Suzanne he wants to show her the surprise that he has for Beth. So at this point, he takes Suzanne to the townhouse. He then tells her he's going to use her to pretend she's Beth for right now. Like a dress rehearsal type deal. Okay. Just so he can get the practice and make it perfect for Beth. So at this point, William puts duct tape over Suzanne's mouth, a bath towel over her eyes, and escorts her through the garage of the townhome. He then takes Suzanne to a room and lays her on a mattress. He then ties her up, and she begins crying, stating that she doesn't want to be tied up, and she's scared. So then he opens up her shirt, cuts off her bra and underwear with a knife, and then he takes the blindfold off of her. He then puts something on her stomach. Oh, God. What is it? It's a piece of human skull. A piece? Just like a bone? So at this point, William then begins exposing the parts of the bodies that are individually wrapped in plastic. He then starts kicking the bodies and essentially just tormenting Suzanne with the murdered female bodies. He then walks back over to Suzanne, puts the blindfold back on her and tells her that if she screams, he will kill her. He then leaves the room and it's at this moment when Suzanne hears people upstairs. She then hears people enter the room and then hears William's voice and a female voice. What is even going on right now? So William then brings in a female called Angela Feet, who's 28 years old. So apparently William has been in a relationship with Angela and has been explaining to her that he's going to surprise her with a house that he bought for her. So she's thinking that he's probably showing her this townhome that he bought for her, but no. So William escorts Angela Feet into the room where Suzanne is currently tied up laying on a mattress. So next, Suzanne's blindfold is taken off, and then William lights up a cigarette and at one point even offers Suzanne a drag off of the cigarette. Just like it's some casual hangout. Suzanne then sees William seat this other girl, Angela, behind her. Now Suzanne can see that Angela is also bound in a similar fashion to her. William then exits the room 
and returns with the splitting maul. He then raises the maul and hits Angela in the head with the maul. So now there's three dead women in this room. Rebecca Holburton, Candace Walters, and Angela Feet. Well, then he rapes Suzanne. After that, he then takes Suzanne back to her place and he threatens to tell Beth everything that happened. At this point, William and Suzanne arrive at the apartment where he then takes all the phones in the house and leaves. He then tells them if they leave, he'll kill all of them. But before he leaves, he tells them to call a male friend and then the male friend arrives at the apartment and then William pulls a gun on the guy, puts the gun in his face and tells him if they leave, he will kill them. I would still leave. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, so would I. But they don't leave. Suzanne tells Beth everything that just happened. The male friend then calls 911 on his cell phone because I guess while Bill forgot to uh, check him for a phone. So then the police arrive and they learn everything and eventually William is located and arrested. So for the trial, William decides he's going to be his own lawyer because, you know, He knows best. He's the best. He is the greatest of all time. He's the greatest. This guy is so full of himself. I cannot stand him. Very much so. So eventually he pleads guilty and is found guilty of the three murders. On September 20th, 1999, he once again represents himself in front of a panel who's going to decide whether or not he gets the death penalty for his crimes. He claims he's a changed man and he loves Jesus and so on and so forth. He eventually gets three death penalties, one for each victim. However, in February of 2003, the Colorado Supreme Court ruled that the Colorado use of the three-judge panel for the penalty phase was not constitutional. Therefore, his sentence is changed to life in prison with no death penalty. Boom! That's that. Prison for life. Yep, no parole for this guy, Wild Bill Cody. So what do you think about that? I'm still infuriated. I can't... Lots happened. That was a lie. Lots of dead females, that's for sure. Lots of girlfriends. Oh my gosh, I know. Just numerous relationships. And that's like, not even like on record of like how many he probably had in... Yeah. Just in general. Yeah. Well, like when he was married to Jennifer, he was... You know, one of her rules was don't ask where he's been all hours of the night. So I'm sure he was just doing whatever he wanted. Or or whoever. (laughs) Yeah. So any thoughts on whether or not this is real or fake? Um, Yeah, real or fake. Let's see. I did have some points here and there. My first one, I find it really hard to believe and cringing as a woman that there are girls out there who keep a list just hidden of all the guys they've slept yeah, with. I don't know. That's strange. <laughs> that was... But she did. Ah, oh, man. That was weird. Um, What else? Gosh, I don't know. I don't want to believe this one. What a maniac. Yeah, definitely. You want to take a stab at this? Stab. <laughs> um, Solely because of how much I don't want to believe this guy was real, a real, just a real piece of crap guy. I'm going to take a stab. I'm going to just go with not true. (laughs) Let's find out. It's true. Of course. <laughs> Are you just trying to do the opposite? I don't. What you need to do from now on is have what you really think it is and then do the opposite. Probably. I'm I'm not even like, it's not about not caring, but I just, I'm just listening to these stories and having fun. Okay. Yeah. I knew it the second you smiled. You got this grin right when I gave you my answer. Well... Yeah, that dude is real. Oh, All that man. stuff is real. He was just terrible. A terrible human being. That's I feel like there could have been like way more crimes he got away with like oh, that weren't reported. He could have, yeah. Because he sounds like a psychopath. Yeah. I mean, look at all the girlfriends he had. I know. One thing I I tried finding was if they ever found out what was in the army bags in that locked room. That's right. Yeah. 
all this stuff. Because he wouldn't show Jennifer. I, that was one of my questions. I want to know what was going on with him, like psychologically. What's the word? Psychologically. There we go. Because like the part when he's like he placed a piece of skull on her stomach. Yeah. What was up with that? Tormenting her. I just. I mean, look at him kicking the dead bodies. He's just literally tormenting uh, her. All of it was weird. What a terrifying fact that he's out there. Well, jail. Well, still. Prison. But yeah, I mean, there's probably more like him. Oh gosh, he's got kids, right? One. The one with Jennifer. But Jennifer's got her. Luckily, Jennifer was never killed. No. None of the wives were killed. It was just the random hookups. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, that was a good one. That was... Yeah, I thought that one was way too unbelievable of a case to be true. <laughs> nope. That was a true one. So... Hope you enjoyed that, everyone. So I want to thank you for listening to episode six of Unbelievably True Crimes. We truly appreciate your support and listenership, and we hope we continue in our ability to grow in producing these episodes. Please review us on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It's extremely helpful, and we greatly appreciate it. Drives us up the iTunes charts and gets our show out to more people. Takes a significant amount of time and research, and sometimes takes even more time making these up. And it means a lot to me if you just take three minutes or less out of your time to give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Or you can just rate us and click submit, but if you're feeling extra generous, you can write a review. Again, Apple Podcasts on your iPhone or on your iTunes desktop app. Just search Unbelievably True Crimes, click the five stars, and write a review if you want. You guys, follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Unbelievably True Crimes to receive regular updates from us. If you've got any suggestions or feedback or crimes you want uh, me to talk about, or if you're a writer and you want to make up a crime, email in to unbelievablytruecrimes at gmail.com. And if I love it, I'll do it. And at the end of the episode, I will credit you. Make sure you tune in for episode seven, which will be next Monday, and tune in every Monday for more incredible case studies with us. This has been Unbelievably True Crimes. I'm Ty. I'm Adri. Thank you for listening to episode six. We'll talk to you soon. But in the meantime, trust Trust nobody. nobody. Thank you for listening to another case of Unbelievably True Crimes with Ty and Adri. We appreciate your attentiveness and good judgment throughout the hearing. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Also, follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at Unbelievably True Crimes. Until next time, court is adjourned. Thank you and good night.